Welcome to Modern Sales, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business owners, and salespeople looking to have more and better conversations with your perfect clients. You'll get a healthy scoop of psychology, behavioral economics, and sales studies to help you create win-win relationships. I'm your host, Liston Witherell, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Modern Sales. If you're looking for a great way to piss someone off and to sour your relationship with them and to lose them as a friend, all you have to do is get their name wrong repeatedly. That's it. Simple as that. Just keep saying the wrong name. Some people will react more strongly to this than others, but I think what you'll find is universally, if you keep calling people by the wrong name, they are not going to like you. Shocker, right? Shocker. You're really surprised by this. Well, think about all of the other personal tidbits and pieces of information you know about people. And if you start repeatedly getting those wrong as well, they're not going to like you very much either. And that is the key challenge with personalization in your outreach in your sales. On the one hand, when you reach out to people, you don't want to be so personalized as to come off as being a total creep. On the other hand, you want to be personalized enough so that they understand you put some time into thinking about this and there's a clear reason for you to reach out to them. And of course, you get their damn name right. (laughs) Please get their name right. That's all you have to do as table stakes. Today, I'm switching it up a little bit. I'm bringing you an interview episode, trying something new here. I haven't done an interview in a couple months on Modern Sales, but I am very excited to bring this one to you. Today, my guest is the VP of Sales over at LeadGenius.com. His name is Derek Ron. He manages a remote team. He's in Las Vegas. His team is elsewhere. And so he's going to bring some information about managing remote teams, what some of the challenges are that come along with that, how to approach your outbound since his company is in such a unique position to give information about that. And towards the end, we're also going to talk about why customer service reps make such good salespeople. I'm really excited to bring you this episode. I enjoyed my conversation with Derek, and I'm sure you will too. And now my conversation with Derek Ron of Lead Genius. So Derek, one thing that I find really interesting about you is you work for Lead Genius and you have a sales team in California, in Boston, Massachusetts, in the Midwest, and you don't live in any of those places. And before we started recording, you were telling me that one of the big challenges is coaching and mentoring your team remotely and something is lost in this remote management situation? What is it? Yeah, I think sometimes it's really just a matter of impressing the importance of kind of specific task onto a remote person. One of the advantages you get when you sit with people day to day in the same office, sharing the same water cooler and having lunchtime interactions and conversations, there's a lot of knowledge transfer that happens just fluidly through people observing through people watching you work, watching their peers work, and gaining that knowledge almost in a tribal sense, right? I mean, you can have great documentation of process. You can have everything from flowcharts and Google Docs and a plethora of information that's shared throughout the team about best practices. But 
sales reps really learn by mirroring and imitating the best of that group, right? And so when you're managing remote people, it's hard to take a rep in Boston that's doing really, really great and a rep in you know California that maybe is first getting started and coordinate that knowledge transfer, that team share. It's also challenging to sometimes impress the importance of certain best practices or certain habits on a remote team. Because unless you're sitting next to them and you can look in their eyes and say, do you understand me on this subject? Something is can be lost in the digital presence. So I think that like, you know, one of the important things is to create a holistic learning environment that doesn't just rely on sharing good calls, sharing best practices, sharing calls of the week, which is what we do, but also that allows reps to sit in and work deals sometimes together in our enterprise organization so that they understand, hey, this has been really effective in messaging to these types of customers. And then they can hear it and they can see it. And it's not just a knowledge transfer doc and say this, because say this is not really what it's about. It's about understand this about your customer, understand this about what they're trying to solve for. And really only hearing that and having that transfer of, aha, I get it. I get what that question was about is going to drive home the value of certain tasks, especially in our business. And I think that goes for everyone who does consultative sales, who's not just selling a widget. So because people are remote, do you find you're having to dedicate a higher percentage of time to train and mentor and coach them as opposed to if you were all in one single place? Oh, for sure. And I think that I've been blessed in a lot of my sales career to have a team that's actually in the same place that I live. And it's just like, let's just do shadowing, like just come and plug in, come and jack in, right? Like it's a lot easier to do that. It's a lot easier to correct behavior because you have that first person, you have that one-on-one touch. The reality is that most people aren't just going to learn something the first time that they hear it. It's through consistent exposure and it's through consistent learn, especially with like, breaking bad habits and like acquiring good ones. Like if you have a piece of misinformation in your head, it's going to take hearing that right, correct information like seven or eight times in order for you to kind of like get rid of the bad information that exists inside of your, you know, in your knowledge transfer. So I think that like, that's one of the challenges with remote people is that you have to consistently drill that message. You have to consistently re-inform and change the behavior. And doing that when you have a dozen sales reps throughout the country is really time consuming. Now, we try to do things from a call sharing standpoint that I think most organizations do. Sharing best practices, sharing phenomenal calls, sharing calls that didn't go so well, and then showing the corrective action on how to get the right attributes out of the call or the right things to happen as a consequence. But it's doubled my training time from what I was doing in terms of actual designated training time when I had a team in office to having a remote team. It's, it's doubled. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so you've definitely lost some of the efficiency. We talked about that in the pre-call. One of the benefits of having remote teams is maybe lower real estate costs, bigger talent pool, different costs of living in each of these locations, but you also lose efficiency, which sounds like you're finding is pretty significant. Yeah. Especially from a management layer perspective, We have a setup in our business where I'm supported by a sales ops person, actually two sales ops people. 
And so, you know, a lot of the stuff we have recorded in terms of trainings, like we use a, a specific technology stack, we use some tool sets, and we also obviously use our own software in order to, you know, empower the outreach of our sales reps, whether they're SDRs or AEs. And so, you know, like some of the training there, like we've obviously built training and, and a curriculum that allows people to get on board, but like getting on board and being an effective seller are two different things, right? You could be onboarded and have the knowledge that you need in order to perform your job, but carrying it out and executing with a high level of, of efficiency and an uplift is another completely different subject. It's a difference between having headcount and having ramped headcount that's actually contributing. And so I think that like one of the things that we try to emphasize as a business is doing a deal desk or doing a deal analysis with those reps to talk about where deals are and how to get them forward. And usually that's just done through one-on-one contact. Whereas previously, we've been able to do kind of pipeline meetings, just an overall pipeline meeting when everyone's in the same room because everyone's talking about their deals with each other and sharing knowledge. Now it has to be a concerted effort in order to actually surface this conversation because... Salesforce only tells you so much and we have good stages and good we have an, an excellent Salesforce in terms of like the overall integrity of it. And we're able to actually drill down to a five percent accuracy on what we're gonna hit every quarter because our stages and our probability to close is so accurate. But to get above that accuracy and to get to actually blowing out a number takes that one-on-one coaching, takes that hands-on approach, and it takes a lot of time if you don't have good systems in place. One thing I find that I think is interesting is doing call reviews, especially in the the appointment setting or the early stages of a sale, is pretty straightforward, especially you mentioned in the survey that I sent you that you guys use SalesLoft, and I'm guessing you use Gong or something like it to record calls and sort of figure out what's going on in the calls. But the deals we really care about, the big ones, the really big complicated ones that involve tons of stakeholders and tons of internal resources for you guys, those are really hard to measure. And those are hard to prepare people for every situation. So I'm wondering, what is your approach in those more complex deals? Because somewhat paradoxically, the training goes to the easy stuff because it's easier to document. And the harder stuff is really where the money's made, but it's so hard to prepare people. So what is your approach to that? Yeah. So we actually do have some triggers set up inside of our Salesforce for these complexity of deals. And we measure that somewhat by engagement and how many people on the other side are are interacting because we really sell into multiple buying centers. And obviously, if we have multiple buying centers engaged in a conversation, usually the deal size is going to be bigger. And that's an early indicator. And then actually, as we move the deal along from prospect to demo to evaluation, the sales reps are updating the information about what the monthly recurring revenue, what the average deal size is. Basically, any deal that is above a certain threshold that basically makes it six figures myself or another executive sponsor are brought in on. And the reason that we're brought in on them is because there are so many niche use cases. There are so many different ways that they could deploy Lead Genius as a service that it's impossible for every sales rep to know every possible outcome or every possible revenue 
team that they could attribute to or help. And so, you know, having kind of a, a senior leadership, like we have several people that came from the data space who know what it is like to actually build these revenue funnels and tech stacks is really the only way that we can solve for that. And then documenting those, like we have a, a full document of interesting use cases that talk about what we do. And then the other thing that we've done is we've done a verticalization or account mapping by actual verticals. And that helps people to understand how HR companies use us, how payment tech companies use us, how healthcare companies use us. Because there's nothing new underneath the sun. Everyone's kind of following someone else's playbook in many ways, right? So we really focus on getting people the territory where they can sell similar deals that they to similar personas or buyers because they're solving the same problems. And for a finance company, the problems that they're solving is very different than someone who's in healthcare and the problem that they're solving. So there is some like some verticalization, some specialization that we do in order to make sure that those reps are just having the right types of conversation and that they don't always need me or another senior management team there to get expertise on. Six months in the job, they should be able to tell every use case for a specific vertical or help to explore new ones and bring those to the forefront for their customers. It just helps to manage their how much knowledge they can actually have on a subject and rinse and repeat. So there's scalability in the model. Well, it seems like enablement is a big part of that too, right? So they should be able to know exactly where can I call up? What are some of the use cases of healthcare companies versus fintech versus martech versus versus versus, right? For sure. In addition to having the executive sponsor, because to your point, if no individual can know every single use case for Lead Genius or any product for that matter, neither can any executive sponsor, I would think. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And our executive team all comes from different backgrounds. So you're, you're absolutely right. Myself, I came from the payroll and HR space. And then I came from the web space after that. And so, you know, my, even my range of knowledge is, is limited. When someone start, starts talking healthcare, my eyes glaze over, right? And so you're, you're absolutely right in that regard that creating these paths and this curriculum, not only in how we orchestrate our named account approach, but also how we teach people and train people on relevant use cases is the only way that we've been able to scale the sales organization. Before, when it was territory-based, it was, again, you're trying to be a master of everything and you end up being a master of none. So I want to uh, focus now on personalization. This is kind of your jam, right? Yeah. I have a lot to say about personalization or probably more to ask than to say about it. My question starts with something you said in the survey. You said it's the age of personalization and data saturation. And the problem now isn't too little data, it's too much data. And so my question to you is, where do I start in terms of thinking about how much personalization to do in my outbound efforts? Because it can be paralyzing to think that I need so much that I can never have enough. And on the other side, some people just go, well, fuck it. I'll send out 2 million emails that are all the same and see what happens. <laughs> so where obviously we need to find that nice middle ground, the Goldilocks version of that. So how do you think about that challenge? Yeah, so it has to be thought about from an ideal customer profile standpoint. 
And what I mean is that personalization can work on small business, it can work on enterprise, it can work in mid-market. But what's going to resonate in each one of those centers is different because those buyers are of different levels of sophistication, right? And they're of different levels of education, right? And different things are going to resonate. And so to the spray and pray mentality of the early 2000s, I will say that your days are numbered. Buyers, the amount of email communication alone that happens to people, the amount of robocalls that happens to people alone is making people close up, is making people really, really create these harsh filters on who they'll even give the time of day to. So I don't think that emailing 2 million records that like you bought on a, or that sit inside your database uh-huh. is going to yield a whole lot. I don't think it's going to yield above 10% open rates. I don't think it's going to yield. Oh, you're being generous, sir. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. It'll be lower than that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the whole point is that like from a brand perspective, I have a marketing degree. And so, you know, I'm a salesperson who thinks about marketing as opposed to, you know, most salespeople are like, the hell with marketing. I just need to go out and build this myself. Kick down some doors. Yeah, exactly. So I think that like the big thing that I think about is what engagements are we having? What engagements are you having? And how does that actually impact your brand? How does it impact your ability later on to have a conversation with someone that you actually want to have a conversation with? Have you actually sullied yourself by the spray and pray method that will literally either get you in a spam box or get you on someone's do not talk to list because you've literally ruined any integrity that you might have from a solution standpoint. And so personalization, I think, is really about actually doing the exercise of, okay, if I'm the buyer, what do I live? What's important to me? What am I trying to solve for? Where What keeps me up at night? And what is the difference, in my opinion, between a good solution and a bad solution, right? And so you could spend a lot of money trying to personalize to every single person out there. And I don't think that's what it's about. I don't think it's about personalizing to every single person. I think it's about looking at your customer base, your named account base. I think it's about looking at your top two or three personas inside of an account and saying, what is it that we do as a business that differentiates us? What is it about this person that differentiates them from their peers to be able to curate a message that says, the reason that I'm contacting you is I actually think that I can solve something for you. And the directional indicator or the data point that I use to find that is this. And if you can just surface that information to someone, you're already so far ahead of what the mass is doing, what the general population is doing you're going to see improvements in efficiency. You're going to see improvements in open rates. You're going to see improvements in actual calls being scheduled, discovery calls. And as long as your persona mapping is on and you actually know what your value proposition is, you're going to see an increase in your funnel creation. That's actually fluid throughout the entire funnel, meaning more deals being closed. I'm wondering, are you leading with the problem typically? Because it sounds like you're saying, okay, people in this group, they're likely to have this small set of problems, like they fall within a range, right? Are you leading with the problem or are you leading with like, hey, we're the best at personalization? I think that like leading with like, we're the best in personalization is is kind of a challenging message to the masses. I think that like what we tend to use is a lot of social proof, mm-hmm. right? Being able to say like, actually build out persona buckets and say, you look like this person at Salesforce. You look like this person at Google who had this challenge. And correct me if I'm wrong or point me in the right direction of the person who is inside your organization who faces those challenges. But like, that's why they used us. That's why they went with us. And, and I would love to have a conversation around your needs there 
And if we can help you, great, right? And also not trying to be everything to everyone, right? Like personalization is so broad that it is like, it could be everything to everyone. There is a time and a place for personalization. It doesn't belong in every sales process. It doesn't belong in every outreach cadence. But what we have seen is if you have product market fit and you understand your buyers and what they're going through and you have a distinct difference in what you offer from a solution standpoint, then that personalization really makes a difference in hitting a number and blowing one out. Now, you mentioned earlier consultative selling. From your website, it looks like you guys are mainly providing data, but are you also providing a service layer to that? We do. do provide a service layer to that. And it's how we're actually, it's how we're architected as an actual team. It's actually how we're set up as a fulfillment organization. So at the end of the day, the customer is getting data from us. But what we do in order to, to actually curate that data is pull from the public web, pull from public sources, pull from partner data. And then we're actually curating the information that that customer needs in order to execute their specific playbook. So it's not about here's access to a data lake of 30 million records and find what you want. For us, it's about tell me the plays you're running. Tell me the campaign you're running. Tell me about the 5,000 customer or 5,000 prospects that you want to penetrate this quarter and what your playbook looks like and what data is needed there. Do you need social data so you can do Twitter retargeting? Do you need a physical address so you can send them a thank you note, a piece of mail? And building data around meaningful use as opposed to building data to be resold over and over and over again to every buyer. And that's why people partner with us is because they're really looking for effect, right? You know, actually like deliverability and not just email deliverability. That's like, we're so far past that as a culture, right? Like you can have 97% email deliverability and have crappy campaign effectiveness. Right. It's about having the right data to actually convey your message and take your playbook and enact it with effect. Now, I would think that that's a double-edged sword to have the service layer. So on the one hand, sure. you're clearly offering more service, more customization, expertise to come along with access to this data. On the other hand, people are like, <laughs> the problem with selling all services, how do I know it's good? It's not tangible. I don't really know until I invest time and there's an opportunity to cost to that. How do you think about pitching and selling that service layer when you're in the sales process? Yeah, I think that like the real thing is you have to give people an understanding of a true analysis of what their current situation is and what their current circumstances from a cost perspective. Because one of the things that we deal with is you've got bulk data providers out there that are like sending people records for 10 cents a record. And the danger with that type of data is that unless you can really segment and pivot and get what you extract, what you want out of that data set, you're literally, you're drowning your team in data and they don't know where to start. They can't possibly be effective because they're spending so much time finding the 2% of gold in this mountain of data than if you actually just arm them with the information that they need. We do a lot of cost analysis with people talking about what their internal headcount looks like, how much they pay those people, how much their time is spent currently mining for data inside their systems, right? Like the actual data admin costs. And the thing is, whether you're in Salt Lake City or whether you're in Silicon Valley or whether you're running a shop overseas, your biggest cost as a team is usually in your people. Your biggest investment is usually in the hourly wage or the salary you're paying them, their healthcare and all their benefits, et cetera, right? And so to be able to say, hey, 30% of your rep's day is spent in literally being a data admin. And if we're able to take 75% of that 
off their plates and leave them with only, you know, 5% of their day they actually have to do because some stuff's always going to be internal. There's always going to be a certain amount of pre-call planning. Nothing can be fully automated. I'm completely cognizant of that. But if you can take away 20% of that time and give it to actual revenue generation, the uplift follows. I can make 20% more calls. I can do 20% more demos. I can create 20% more pipeline. As long as they're not taking extra water breaks or smoking cigarettes in the parking lot, and they're actually using that time to actually improve their metrics and their life and their paycheck, again, the ROI case is, is really there, is solid there. The other thing is about thinking about it from a standpoint of campaign effectiveness. And again, most people, because of Marketo and, and marketing automation systems, like you can't just store every record that you want. There's a cost of storing data. There's a cost of storing bad data. There's a cost of actioning on bad data, right? Like sending a direct mail piece to a customer that is out of business has a hard cost. So people that have run campaigns and people that understand like what effectiveness is and what success is can immediately see uplift. They can immediately say, oh, I delivered 20% more packages, therefore I got 20% more MQLs, therefore I created 20% more pipeline, and it's fluid throughout. So it, it's an easy justification to make, but it's a big leap of faith because you're right. Service layers are, it's like, why would I trust you as an extension of my team? And it's really about talking about our pedigree and our experience to help these Fortune 5 companies do this. That usually is that. And we connect a lot of people, right? We act as connections to people. We know people at SalesLoft. We know people at Outreach. We know people at other tools. And so it's not just being a resource when it comes to our data, but also how to use our data. And we have a lot of professional network that are best in class people like Topo. This is Bay Area Advisancy. Like We often have to just say, hey, we're not subject matter experts in that area, but these are the top three people you should be talking to if you want to tackle this problem. Mm -hmm. And doing that really is what kind of differentiates us is what we're, we're agnostic. We want you to get the most out of your funnel as opposed to spending the most on data. Now, I have to ask you a question that I ask everybody I've interviewed in lead gen or demand gen, and that is, you've pointed out that the days of spray and pray are gone, right? So thank you, Aaron Ross, for killing that and for filling my inbox. We all know the words out on that. People have tried it. And basically, we don't pay attention to those. We tune them out just like ad blindness online, right? <laughs> Better yet, I have Ghost reinstalled, so I don't even see the ads when I'm online. And similar things going to happen. We're going to get to the point where our inbox just starts to filter things out. And it's already happening as we go forward. My question to you is, how do you see outbound sales evolving given that Basically, the cheap, easy things are all so competitive now that they're no longer cheap and easy. And it's always going to be this ratcheting up of difficulty and investment and probably increasing cost of sale. So how do you see that evolving? Yeah, we've reached this kind of like inflection point. And there's like a there's a law of diminishing returns, especially for companies on scale where they've got 400 sales reps and a huge potential addressable market. So it is this counterbalance of, okay, if I'm going to pay 20% more for good data, then my uplift over the campaign that was running without good data better be 25, 30, 40%, right? Because I got to make that cost back and have a business case internally so I don't get fired, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I think that there is a growing need for operational teams, operational titles. Like we run our business. Like I have a, a right-hand person named Adam Louie and he literally runs my entire organization, not because he's actually making the tactical decisions, but because he's empowering me with the data to actually make the tactical decisions on what to deploy and what not to deploy. And so that's why you've seen these titles. I mean, like 
data ops people, they used to be data ops people, not sales ops people, not marketing ops people, right? And so part of this is the need to raise and level the organization up in order to cut through the clutter. It's also the reason you've seen the types of campaigns, the types of outreach kind of do these waves in fashion, right? Like bell bottoms coming in and out of trend, like every 30 years, right? Et cetera. You know, we're going to see Jinko jeans here become really popular again after skinny jeans you know, <laughs> following this trend line. It's happening, my friend. Yeah, the 90s are coming back. The 90s are coming back, right? The 80s are in right now. I've got a, a bunch of shirts in my closet to tell you that. <laughs> and then, you know, the 90s are going to come back in style as well. And, and what you've seen is more and more of a focus on direct dials. For a long time, direct dials like disappeared from the landscape. People were like, oh, I just got to send these emails. So if I just send enough emails, I can get enough appointments and I'm just going to... And then again, everyone started sending emails and then that became less and less effective. And again, the diminishing returns of that investment are really, were there right? Like we're at saturation point. And so direct dials are becoming a big piece. Now, it's not just about direct dials because there's in this time frame where things go in and out, like direct mail, popular again. Yes, Companies like PFL and Sendoso are making a living. And we, those are partners of ours because they use our data to affect the effectiveness of their campaigns. So I think that like, you're going to see the method shift. And I still think that like social selling is it's not really being done correctly. It's only kind of partially reached its potential. But again, I think you're just going to see the knobs that people turn in order to get responses just continue to change to have that differentiation. Oh, this person sent me a personal note. Okay. You've actually separated yourself from all the assholes who are sending me emails that are just bombarding me with a opt-out clause, right? Like you've already separated yourself in some way, shape, or form. And if you're selling a product that also separates itself you're probably in a pretty good position. So again, I'm not trying to say we need to go back to the days of UPS and sending mail to everyone. But I do think that that differentiation is really critically important. And that's what top class organizations are doing. They're finding the ways to go where their clients want to be talked to. All right. So you may have just dug yourself into a hole, but I want to hear what you have to say about social selling, not even scratching the surface of being sort of optimized or where it could be. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the challenges in sales organizations is having the data that you need to actually execute a playbook and actually have a playbook that you know gives returns, right? That go back to that sales ops piece. And so, you know, it's funny because like you could reach out to someone on LinkedIn and like because of the way that in-mails are structured and because of like the way people use social selling, I think that like, again, it's like really, really diminishing returns. But what I have seen be of impact and effect is if you have something like, hey, you're involved in this cause and that's a cool cause and I care about that cause and I'd love to talk to you about like how I could be an impact there and connecting on a personal level, not bullshit, but actually connecting with someone on a personal level, whether that's about where they're from, where they've been where they're going, what's important to them. And I think a lot of that lives in social data. And I think that like being able to triangulate that person as a person to that person as a business person to that entity is really where social selling needs to go. And it, it can't just be glistened by looking at LinkedIn. You can't just look at someone's LinkedIn profile and say, this is who they are. But you can start a conversation saying, hey, I think this is who you are. And this is why that's important to me. And this is what I'd like to actually start a dialogue around. And I think that doing it that way instead of just like the, because in mail is being used on LinkedIn, just like bulk mail is being used to spray and pray, right? It's not, there's no personalization. Well, it's direct response marketing typically is what I see. Exactly. They're like, hey, I got this thing. You want to talk to me? 
And that's pretty much it. Now, I will say though, this is one of the objections I get when I tell people what you've just said, and I mostly agree with you like 95%. But the one thing I will say is it is a little disingenuous to contact someone on LinkedIn and say like, hey, you know, I'm reaching out because of this thing about you personally. We went to the same grad school. We grew up in the same town, whatever, right? But that's not really why I'm getting a hold of you. I only care about that because you are in a position that I think I can help. Mm-hmm. How do you walk that line with social selling? Because I find I personally am asking selfishly because I think it's tricky. If I'm reaching out to people and I am like, hey, I'm curious, sometimes they're like, just tell me what you want. And other times when I just tell them what I want, they're like, what the hell, man, this is spam. Like get out of my inbox. And it's like hard to understand what the line is to walk. Yeah. So, you know, I think like the biggest thing for me is just like, because we have email communication has dehumanized us. (laughs) Indeed. Well, the internet has in general. Yeah. The internet has in general, and I mean, there's we could have a beer and have a, a bigger conversation <laughs> yeah. about like where we're going as a culture and everything else. Yes, sir. But let's just keep it to the sales stack today. So I think that the important thing is to humanize yourself as a seller because people like they truly do like. I think that most people have bought from me because they liked who I am and they trusted me more than they necessarily even liked the product I was selling, and that's just my entire sales career, right? And so, you know, in order to establish trust, you do have to have a certain amount of sincerity. And if you go and say, hey, bro, see that you went to University of Arizona. Really cool. I went there too. Bear down. That's going to turn a certain set of the population off. It just naturally is going to. So, you know, it has to be done mindfully. It has to be done tactfully. But you're also playing a percentage game just like you are when you do cold email outreach. And what you're making the bet on and what you have to be able to measure is that the positive attribute, the positive uplift of doing that is of greater impact than the negative attribute or negative shift, right? Like, it's all a game of benefits versus costs. And so, again, like I said, I think that people that have done personalization, I'll give you an example of a customer. We have a customer in the payment tech space who sells to SMBs, specifically to uh, quick service restaurants and SMB. And the way that they broke down the noise barrier is by talking about popular menu items or awards that that business had won. And they put in the first sentence of their outreach. And their positive response rates, not just response rates, but positive response rates went up 250% with that data point compared to the previous email because it resonated with the person because that person who's on the other side is a small business owner. They're usually a chef and they care about, they take pride in what they produce and put out there in the world. So you just got to find what is important to people and what they care about putting out into the world. And if you do that along that psyche, it's not always going to work. There's no silver bullet, but is it going to work better than spamming the shit out of people? Yeah, probably. Totally. I mean, I'll keep it real here and break the uh, fourth wall, right? The reason we're having this conversation is because I found you on LinkedIn. I sent you a message that was highly relevant. I have a podcast that's highly relevant. And I said, Hey, I'd love to have you on. Here's why. And here we are. Right. So I agree with you. I think it can work. And one thing that I think is so interesting about people in general, and definitely true for me is I could get 20 positive responses and you get that one nasty one. Right. And you're like, Oh my God, why, why do you have to be like that? Mm-hmm. I also think that this is like what dissuades people from doing this and doing this on scale is that they get that one nasty gram 
Yeah. And it's like the one bad restaurant review. It doesn't matter that there's like 50 Yelpers before them that loved everything they do. They had one person who had a bad day who decided to take it out on them online. And I think it would become so like, we become so fragile in that way. Like the internet age has definitely made us more fragile as being able to take constructive criticism instead of being able to say like, Hey, look at the 44 positive responses I got. What they immediately focus on sales reps, right? Is, Oh man, look at this nasty note that I got Derek. And it's like, yeah, but how much pipeline did you create from that messaging before that? Oh, you mean it's been better than what you've done before? So again, it's it's really easy to get caught up in the nastiness and that one negative tweet or that one negative response. But I think you have to look at things as a macrocosm and like the macro of what you're doing from an outbound. And there's going to be you're going to break some eggs. You're making a, you're making a sales omelet. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to break some eggs. There's, it's not possible to do it any other way. So yes. I think people just have to have that lens that nothing is ever going to be perfect. Totally. I'm just laughing because I've been there, right? It's just funny because it's really hard for most of us to not be affected by the negative. So it's obviously a big quality in high-performing salespeople is resilience, right? We're not so affected by things. We can kind of bounce back as they happen. All right, sir. Well, you have been very, very open about what's going on internally with your company and kind of what you're working on. I have a few quick hitting questions for you. What is one single book that you recommend? That's really, really tough. I love Daniel Pink as an author, just in general. I think that just like, I've had a lot of people who I've turned into sales reps that didn't think they were sales reps, right? But I look at, especially with where sales is going, it's really relationship management and building value and building trust. And I've taken people in the customer success organization were like, oh, I really hate sales. And I'm like, okay, well, read this book, read To Sell as Human. And all of a sudden they realize that they are a salesperson, that that's like with their interactions with their spouses or just how they, they interact with the world that like it's all sales in a way. And so I love that book just from the standpoint of I've used it to actually recruit people from other lines of business who didn't think they were salespeople. Yeah. And some of the best salespeople I've ever had in any org have been people who didn't consider themselves to be salespeople. Okay. So people who don't consider themselves to be salespeople, what would you say is the most important quality for a salesperson given today's climate of selling? So I think that the most important thing would be to ask a relative and a somewhat provocative question. Mm-hmm. Right. That actually makes people go into their personal life, go into their day to day, go into their actual problems, go into their actual workflow, and then listen actively and relate that problem to an aspirational solution or somewhere that they should want to go as a business. And by doing that, by listening, by active listening and by building trust, right, and building that thought leadership, you don't have to be the stickler closer guy. You don't have to be super resilient. You just have to know how to ask the right questions. And again, that's why I found a lot of good salespeople that they didn't consider themselves salesy. And it's like, no, but you're a good listener. You're a sincere person, right? The sincerity piece is really critical. Like You actually care about solving people's problems. That's why I've had a lot of success with customer success people is that they truly usually are driven by, how do I fix this? Mm-hmm. And so I think that when I look at what I'm looking for from a skill set is, can you analyze? Can you actually ask an open-ended question, take what they've given you and expound on it and make it a conversation that's mutual and that that person sees benefit in solving? 
All right, now, Derek, I want all the listeners to know I didn't put Derek up to that, but he just basically said what my training is all about. So thank you for doing that on my behalf. I'm, I really appreciate it. Okay, so next fast question for you. What is one tool that you recommend and can't live without within your sales organization? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> you can make it too. Can I say my sales ops guy? No. <laughs> sure. No, no, I mean, all kidding aside, there's a bunch of outreach tools. There's Outreach, there's Sales Loft, there's Groove, which is a tool that we actually use internally. That's a great tool about building cadences and keeping people on task. But I actually, I look at it from the standpoint of actually being able to do good funnel analysis and be able to actually know where things are, know when deals are stuck. And so I actually use a tool called Funnel Source that our CEO recommended to us. It just sits on top of Salesforce. There's a lot of these. There's a lot of insight tools or kind of dashboard tools that I think are like really, really beneficial. But I love the ability to look stage by stage at people's pipeline to review it with them very quickly. Like pipeline analysis or like pipeline calls can take a long time with reps, especially when you've got remote reps to go deal by deal, but to be able to flag things and be able to say, hey, this deal is at this stage and it's basically at churn risk or it's like you're at risk of actually losing this deal based on cycle length and historicals for us is such a better way to manage the business because you're focusing on the 10% of deals you should be focusing on instead of the stuff that's healthy, stuff that's not healthy. So I would say that. And obviously I'm going to make a self plug here, but like us using our own service and eating our own dog food has been really huge to to scaling a, a remote organization because without being able to have good processes to actually nominate accounts and get the right contacts inside those accounts and get the right data points on those accounts, it's really hard to scale. Fantastic. And you're, hey man, you're free to plug your own tool. Please do. Okay. So one last question, what's one habit system or routine that you couldn't live without? For me, it's just, it's always about awareness and self-awareness, right? And so as a rep, one of the things I did every Friday before I left, before I kicked off for the weekend, I'm, I'm a work hard, play hard kind of guy going to that library of shirts in my closets. I definitely like to have fun and I like to put in long hours and then the weekends, like get out of that and be a person. But one of the things that allows me to do that and not take a rough work week or a great work week into my weekend is just a pipeline analysis at the end of every week to make sure that every opportunity is updated, that all the information that needs to be there to set myself up for success the following week is documented. And just like whether you do it in task in Salesforce, whether you have another tool that you do this in, like I've done it when I've worked with less complicated or less sophisticated organizations. I did it inside my Outlook calendar. Like it was a nightmare, but it was some place for me to manage, right? And just sticking to a single source of truth for you as a rep to be able to manage your book of business, to manage follow-ups and tell where deals really are. So that when you walk in on Monday morning, you're like, these are the five things I got to do this week. And it's not it's because you spent the time on Friday getting it right. That That's really made me a successful person. And it's led to the success of my reps, them being able to have their weekends and decompress and be effective come Monday because they weren't carrying the luggage and the baggage from the week before because they weren't analyzing things and stressing themselves out. They're like, no, I know the five things I need to do next week. And I'm excited to get back to them on Monday morning. Excellent, sir. Well, you have given tons of great advice, great insight. If somebody wanted to follow up with you or lead genius, what should they do? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Derek Ron. It's Derek at leadgenius.com. 
You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I do accept LinkedIn requests. Only if they're written well, though. Only if they're written well. And no, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm a pretty sociable guy. So Derek Ron at, at Lead Genius uh, or Derek at LeadGenius.com if you want to shoot me an email or I'm on all the regular channels, Twitter and LinkedIn and onward. So that's where to reach me. And it's D-E-R-E-K and last name is R-A-H-N. And that'll all be linked in the show notes as well. And also you mentioned, Derek, I, I want to make sure to get this in for you as well. You do offer at Lead Genius a free custom data analysis with a Lead Genius expert. Where should someone go to get that? Yeah. So actually just go to leadgenius.com and request a demo. I will say this, that we are a consultative team and we're not a team that is looking to convert everyone. Not everyone's a good fit for Lead Genius. And I think that we, as an organization, have a great amount of responsibility in not selling a tool to someone who's not a good fit. So if you're interested and you just want to find out if you're a good fit, feel free to ask for that custom data analysis. And, and what we could do is we can show you the tool, we can show you what other people are doing with it and show you what's possible. And based on your kind of customer maturity index, which is something we track as a business, we can always recommend the right person for you or the right tool for you as well. And my friend, you know, I've never met you prior to this, but I say the same thing. I say, I'm not going to sell anything to someone unless it will help them. So I don't know Derek, but I totally agree with what he said. So I do believe him. If you do want a demo from Lead Genius, it's in the show notes. You don't have to go anywhere. Just open up the show notes right now. One click. It'll take you onto that website. Derek, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great. Really a pleasure meeting you. And hopefully we can meet face-to-face during the next conference or show. Love that.